0: Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Lauren Charnley, Investment Director from Tilney's Leeds Office, and I'm talking today with Chris Godding, our Chief Investment Officer, and Ben Seegerscott, our Head of Multi-Assets, about our view on markets and resulting investment strategy, as well as the longer-term economic and social issues at play. Before we begin, here is some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. We are recording the podcast from our homes today. So, Ben, we talked about our positive outlook on equities following the COVID-19 sell-off in March. And we've seen a strong rally through April and into May. Where does that leave our outlook now?
1: Uh, yes, it has indeed been, been a pretty strong bounce. Uh, so if you look at, at the year to date and the pathway that we've taken, uh, markets really fell Starting in March, the, the market in the deer was on 23rd of March. And since then, there has been a really strong bounce back. But I think it is probably worth just going into some of the nuance and the details of, of what's happened there. Um, casting our minds back, if you looked at what we talked about sort of late March and into early April, we were really talking about the need for people, we think, to resist those instincts to capitulate during the market de- depth. It's entirely understandable, but the risk you have there. Is turning what could be a sort of cyclical paper loss into a permanent actual loss. And since that point, the speed and the scale of the, the of the bounce has been surprisingly fast. Um, broadly speaking, if you look at global equities from their, their market nadir, they've recouped around half of that loss so far. And um, just by the numbers from the, the peak that was actually in February, markets fell, peaked a trough down 26%, but now global equities have rebounded. They're now only 12% uh, off uh, off their highs in sterling terms. It hasn't been quite so good for, for UK equities, but still there, the market's managed to regain around a third uh, a third of the loss uh, since their, their recent peak. I think what is important to say, though, if you look at the detail, the composition of this change has been fairly unusual. So normally what you tend to see when markets fall aggressively, It tends to be the more cyclically sensitive stocks, uh, areas such as mining, energy, they're much more sensitive to the economy. They tend to fall further and harder. They also tend to to bounce back up more quickly um, in a subsequent recovery. That's not what we've seen this time around. In fact, what we have seen is the markets have, have been led by companies that can fare reasonably well uh, during during this downturn, the likes of technology companies, consumer staples. So we haven't seen the traditional um, re- recovery value stocks. Instead, it's actually been those more defensive areas. And I think that that's quite relevant. Um, there's also been some of the normal factors, central banks uh, and, and government action as well has helped to avoid the, the market. That also explains to some extent why the U.S., has done, has done particularly well. The US market, its makeup tends to favour technology stocks uh, and more defensive stocks. So, the reason I highlight that, even though we, we've had a bit of a recovery, some people think that that means the worst is behind us. I think it is important really to highlight where we are now, I think, is much more in the middle of market events. Some of these nuances perhaps aren't captured in the headline numbers, the sort of numbers that get reported uh, on the, the evening news. So, looking forward in terms of our outlook through to the end of next year, I think we do still see uh, the likelihood that mark that equities will, will rise further, particularly at the back towards the back end uh, of next year. That said, I think where we are now with markets, we've got here a lot quicker than we expected. Um, obviously, that is good for investors. I think it does mean a couple of things, though. From here, I think there is the potential. Uh, that we see some potential changes in style and sector leadership, so different styles perhaps benefiting over others through the course of the next 18 months. Um, I also think there is some potential for short-term pullbacks. Again, the the timing is almost almost impossible to forecast. But following these rapid rallies, there's a bit more of a risk that we have some of these these short-term pullbacks in markets. So, I think it's important that investors uh, are aware of that and perhaps manage manage their own
0: expectations
1: in that regard.
0: And with that in mind, can you maybe talk about how we're, how we're deploying our investment strategy? What sort of managers are we looking for? Well, I think
1: we've we consistently warned against trying to get too clever with market timing. It's one thing to be able to talk about different scenarios. It's quite another uh, to be able to time those. So I think, you know, I continue to to urge people to to resist uh, the the natural instinct, but the counterproductive instinct to pull money out of markets after their fault, but also trying to get too clever when markets have rallied. It's important to remember the best periods often follow uh, the very worst periods. So in terms of what we're doing, we're not swinging uh, our, our portfolios or our central strategies around too much. What we are doing, though, is sticking with our preferred fund managers These are really talented investors uh, that through the market cycle, we think can add value. They pick good quality stocks. So these are robust companies that we think have have strong strong prospects. The sort of managers that we invest in in our core, they potentially can get left behind if we see strong rallies in markets. So there's those sharp relief rallies. Um, But we don't see that anytime soon. And actually, if anything, on our current outlook, we think they can add value on this sort of more gentle trajectory, we'd also expect them to, to offer some downside protection. What that really means in terms of our, of our equity strategy is is happy. we're happy to have a little less in terms of broad market exposure and a little bit more in stock-specific value. In the jargon, people talk about less beta, more alpha. But I think that sort of stock picking is well-suited to these sort of environments. We're also making sure that we stay diversified. That means having lots of different country exposures, but also benefiting uh, from slightly different styles in our managers, making sure they're not all picking the, the very same store, sort of stocks and trying to potentially diversify if we do see this change of style leadership. Um, as I said, I think pullbacks are quite likely. It is important. And what we're doing in our strategy is focusing on the, the long term. It's important not to panic if you do see any of these pullbacks. I would try and say, uh, you know, channel some of your recollections from what we have had in March and April. Most of these events, even these sort of smaller scale events, do tend to be cyclical in nature. They are quite likely in the short term. We can't predict them. But if you focus on the long-term value and the the potential to add returns there, that I think is going to be a a winning investment strategy.
0: Okay. Thanks, Ben. Over to Chris now. Perhaps you can touch on what, in your view, are the major longer-term economic issues?
2: Yeah, thanks, Lauren. Um, there are obviously lots of things to consider. Um, one of the, um, the tragedies of this is we, you know, we've had two hundred fifty thousand deaths so far, and the human cost of this crisis is quite staggering. And the economic costs of rising unemployment and and potentially in the long run debt, the debt funded stimulus is also uh, something to consider. Um, one of the principal areas that we think there'll be a lot of focus on in terms of future funding will be the healthcare preparedness, and that will obviously that will need to rise. And the WHO estimate that uh, that needs to increase by about one pound per person per year, which doesn't seem like a huge amount of, of money. But we're also we'll also see uh, quite an acceleration of technology solutions that were previously stuck in the mud um in addition the infrastructure must be upgraded in areas like IC units particularly in countries where in the UK, like the uk where critical bed uh, availability critical care bed availability is is well below the g10 average so there's some major issues to to respond to there there's also a question of the reliance on india and chinese manufacturing for drug ingredients, and they supply about 60% of the basic uh, ingredients uh, by volume. So onshoring some of that production will will potentially uh, happen over the next few years, and it will potentially also increase and create more local jobs.
0: Okay. And, and do you think that that means we'll see a reverse of globalization?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting, well, it's a very hot topic at the moment. People have got very divergent views on it. and. I think economic isolation versus cooperation, I think diminished integration generally will be a detriment to the world, but we do need to redress some of those imbalances and over-reliance on foreign production. Uh, and that is going to be, in my view, is likely to be an emerging theme. And Similarly, the role of government in trade has become quite starkly highlighted in what has been a largely laissez-faire world um, over the last few years, with Donald Trump essentially the poster child for state intervention in that regard.
0: And do you think that that implies that we'll see a return of inflation moving forward?
2: Well, in in the respects of globalization, if globalization reverses inflation, it's been a big deflationary influence. Um, It's a good question. One of the things we're looking at is, is the large monetization of debt, the monetization of debt and pushing bond yields to around 0%. Um, you know, while necessary, that has reduced the appeal of holding fiat currencies like the dollar um, and other and other currencies, and and their and their debt on the principle that um, the creating that that money, printing that money is highly inflationary, and the the challenge of it exploding government balance sheets, and it, it, you know it's been with us for a while, but it's just now moved to a new level, and. You know, I think, rather interestingly, James Galbraith, who's professor of government at University of Texas, suggested recently um, that an alternative approach to dealing with mounting debt levels, i.e., that printing of money and creation of of, of uh, capital, was to look at the way we treated the the same levels of debt um, uh, uh, the the uh, post the World War II. In that situation debts were essentially canceled because you were dealing with a common enemy and it was a common effort. And you could argue that the same applies here. So the whole financial system, if we went down that route, would have to be reset. So it's a pretty extreme view with an implicit moral hazard. But it does time with the theories behind helicopter money and uh, the monetization of debt that people have been talking about uh, of late. There's prospects of inflation generally is one of the questions we are grappling with. And this really involves the determination of the demand and supply effects on the global economy. In the short term, if demand picks up quickly, we will may see a supply shortage. So i.e., The supply side won't be able to keep up with that renewed demand. And that could lead to essentially demand-led inflation. Um, and there's also a political will for inflation to rise. It's in the interests of the governments to see the value of their debt uh, eroded by inflation um, over time, and that is essentially what happened quite effectively after the World War II, and when um, we had the combination of uh, in, you know the massive government programs in the UK and inflation uh, worldwide meant in the UK's instance, that the debt to GDP fell from 270% to below 50% by the, by the 70s.
0: So this government intervention, does that mean a reversal of austerity moving forward?
2: I think um, it's unlikely that we, have, we don't have the flexibility that we had in terms of opportunity post-World War II. But I think the political zeitgeist has already turned firmly against austerity. austerity. Um, and, and that essentially happened before this crisis here. And now the Pandora's box of government activism has been opened and the economists are likely to look at that post-World War II model as a guide to what works. In any, in any case, the supply side argument to higher inflation also assumes that a reversal of globalization and an elimination of on price disruptors who've been quite prolific over the last few years, and that will... Moderate the deflationary trend that we've seen. Now the flip side, and this is I say this is a very active argument at the moment. Deflationary camp is built on the fact that there's a massive output gap that's been created by this uh, significant recession, and that will, and it will take households year years to rebuild their balance sheets. Um, they will defer large expenditures um, such as white goods and cars, etc., and also. The the fiscal measures that some people see as being inflationary are actually just loan guarantees rather than fresh new money that will be clawed back over time. There is there is nothing stimulative to demand about adding more debt um, to the government or corporate balance sheets. And, he, uh, and as I say, most of that debt is designed to be temporary. Um, the, post the, GF, the, the GFC experience is, tells us that it's very difficult for any advanced economy to meet an inflation target. Um, Japan, the EC, and, and Europe are particular poster children in that, in that respect. But what we are not worried about, if, if by some miracle those targets were exceeded, which I think most governments would agree they'd like to see them exceeded over a reasonable period of time, the central banks have all the tools they need to control it and get it back under, get it back within the, uh, the target range if they wish.
0: Okay, thank you. Europe has struggled to deliver a coordinated response to the crisis. What are your thoughts on its future?
2: So this is starting to be a, a very interesting topic of conversation. We've got the question about who runs Europe at the moment because we've got the European Commission essentially at odds with the um, German governing council. Um, and so it's questions of and definitions of sovereignty. And so this is, uh, the the Germans obviously questioning the sovereignty of the European Commission in 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 some of the bailout programs. And so the sustainability of the euro is uh, of the euro area and the euro itself is is a big question. The uh, economists at Deutsche Bank see the big big four euro area countries. Debt rise from 92% to 148% of GDP by next year. Um, Germany's position will rise from just 59% at the moment to 97%. But on the on the flip side, Italy is a real concern, where the debt to GDP ratio will climb from 135%, which is already high um, pre-COVID, to just over 200% by the end of 2021. Uh, if Italy was a standalone country, of course, outside the EU, then its independent central bank would have to make decisions as whether to monetize that debt. Um, the currency, if it were still the lira, would come under enormous pressure, probably have to devalue the currency. Um, and the market would then essentially, if, if, if they didn't actively devalue the currency, then the market would probably decide to do it for it anyway.
0: And with this in mind, how will Europe stay together?
2: Um, then the optimistic scenario is that the ECB will increasingly will be allowed to, to buy increasing amounts of, of Italian debt, i.e. they're going to deviate from what they call the capital keys. But essentially, the ECB is only allowed to buy a proportionate amount of debt of each country. Um, and by deviating, they can buy significantly more Italian debt um, than they t- they do uh, the countries which have lower debt levels, and that's to support Italian bond yields. But for this to happen, I think Italy would have to commit to uh, some significant rolling conditionality about how it manages the economy. And that's proven to be quite difficult in the past. So it's it's a relatively unstable equilibrium within, with Europe you know, seemingly in permanent identity crisis. Um, there's a contrast between North and South. Um, which so far has been sustained by endless compromises. But what I'm pretty sure about is that austerity, which was very much the, the enforced post the GFC, will not fly uh, in this situation. And Europe will have to find a way to mutualize the problem. Um, you know, I, I imagine, though, in, in typical European style, we'll probably have to go to the edge. Um, of uh, a stress situation before we, we get to that mutualization.
0: And how do you view the impact of COVID-19 from a social perspective?
2: Well, um, Lauren, the very fact that we're doing this um, by, uh, from our own homes is, uh, is an indication that working practices will change, and they surely have. And, and we, as a firm, and I think across the country, we've adapted, adapted very quickly and effectively to working from home um many people actually see a significant benefit from it in terms of time with family etc um, but training mentoring personal interaction they're all key to development uh, i.e. the next generation so locking ourselves away in isolation is clearly not sustainable and we are likely to need substantially you know more integration but um you know less Real estate in in the in the future, so um know it's a challenge of com- combining that working from home change change to um, the the challenges of uh, growing the next generation in a in a service-based sharing economy. Um, the the single largest asset is our residential home, which is massively underutilized under the old model where we all used to commute from our own small box to one big box um, to communicate and benefit from that technical infrastructure. Um, I think what's been shown recently is a lot of the advantages we had from that in terms of that shared technology um, is now possible from home. Um, And I suppose that some of the, the longer term benefits could be as more people spend more time in the local communities, those local communities get a lot stronger. So, but the virus—the the, virus—will pass. But it's—I think it's—it's it's forced us into this a rapid shift in behaviour that possibly would have happened anyway. Uh, it was happening. We were—we were seeing more and more evidence of people wanting to work from home at, uh, at Tilney, for instance. Um, but basically, what we're probably seeing is ten years of social change compressed into a three-month cramming session. Uh, the opportunities. Remain, but we will need to think about the potential for how that material change in society and business models will work versus those that um, those that essentially will become structurally challenged in in the new model. In reality, the speculation of radical shifts, which we see quite a lot of these days, people writing about. it's either black or white, It's not, and there's nothing grey about this. Um, I think that's likely, those radical shifts are likely to morph over time into much more moderate, but distinct inflections in different businesses in the landscape um, that we will need to uh, adapt to and change our investment policy accordingly.
0: Thank you both for your comments. We'll be back again soon with a new episode. If you've got any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email at podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thanks for listening.